Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Let me start by welcoming you all to University College for this occasion, whether you're from the UCL community or an esteemed guest. And this is the first of two dialogues, Olympic event-related dialogues, which uh, uh, I'll be taking part in. The first one is tonight with an esteemed scholar and professor of Greek and Latin at UCL, Chris Carey. Now, the fact that today, after 2,500 years, we are still inspired and read the works of Euripides and Sophocles, who dissected the atavistic impulses of revenge and lust and hate and greed, as well as the works of Plato and Aristotle, who looked at the problem of knowledge, of how we acquire it and how sure we are of what we know, as well of love and desire and the linkage between love and knowledge and wisdom. The fact that we are still inspired by these texts implies that um, human nature has not changed very much in the past 2,500 years, although much else has. And so it's within the context of concepts that we're going to be talking about <coughs> the Olympic Games, uh, the Asian Olympic Games, and their relevance today. Now, Chris, I gather that the ancient Olympic Games were held in Olympia, which is uh, inland. Mm -hmm. And I gather it was a pretty inhospitable and unpleasant place to be in. Uh, indeed, it is said that, uh, I don't know where I read this, but it said that if you had a disobedient slave, you would threaten him with uh, uh, sending him to the Olympic Games, mm -hmm. which is not, of course, what we uh, associate with Olympic Games today. So there must have been some countervailing forces which really attracted people to Olympics. Would you like to? Yeah. <coughs> Perhaps we, we could start with the awful side <coughs> of it. The, um, uh, it, is, it is true that we, we read that um, uh, the best thing to do with, a, or the worst thing to do with a disobedient slave is to send him to Olympia. It clearly could be a very unpleasant place. The games are played in the height of summer. Uh, the Greek sun is relentless at that time of year. Uh, you then pour into a relatively small inland site a vast number of people who are just coming there uh, once every four years for the, for the festival. It's a small site. The uh, facilities are very limited. The, uh, essentially, it seems that things like, for things like latrines, um, you have nothing, uh, uh, nothing tailor-made. We do have two rivers. There's the Alpheus and the Cladius. And obviously, they're very useful both as latrines and as drinking uh, sources of drinking water. So it might not necessarily have been the, uh, the, the most uh, salubrious of, uh, of places. We also then know that um, the festival started with a very large sacrifice. They sacrificed 100 cattle, uh, what the Greeks called the hecatomb. Uh, these cattle must obviously have been, have been assembled from uh, the neighboring country, uh, countryside for quite some time. So you've got the cattle's penned, cattle penned there. Uh, you've got all of the problems when you pen cattle. You've got all of the, uh, uh, all of the very useful dung that they're, they're producing, but obviously very smelly as well. And then, of course, you kill them. Uh, you kill them and you burn the uh, entrails on the altar. One of the things that uh, the Greeks like to do is to give the gods the unpleasant bits of the animal. And then, of course, you feasted on the edible bits. All of this dead animal, of course, attracts flies. And uh, 
it is it, it is said by uh, ancient scholars that um, uh, the, uh, uh, the there was a cult of uh, Zeus, the fly averter, at uh, at Olympia, because there were far fewer flies than you would expect in a place with all of this awfulness. So yes, it could be grim, but but but. Uh, the but, I think, is that you also have, um, well, I think, first of all, you have a wonderful entertainment. Uh, you have some of the best athletes from all over the Greek world, and people do travel hundreds of miles for this. Some of the best athletes from all over the Greek, the Greek world to watch. And so as a spectator event, uh, it is uh, enormously significant. There are also cultural activities that go on alongside the, uh, the athletics opportunity to meet people and certainly in, in the early period of Greek history uh, the Greek elite from different states had far more in common with each other than they did with the peasantry of their own society so an opportunity to meet people contract marriage allowance, uh, alliances all of that sort of social social side and then of course we can imagine that there are all sorts of other things as well. There must have been hawkers selling food uh, flooding into Olympia. There will have been temporary brothels. Uh, and so there are all sorts of things to, to keep you entertained. These were you licensed temporary the brothels? Uh, Sorry? They were licensed temporary brothels or illegal? Generally, they did tend to tax prostitutes. Uh, I see. Yes. I see. Um, uh, it was a useful source of income for the state. Okay, well, so to what extent was this a, a uh, sort of reflecting some other undercurrent in Greek society, aggression, uh, war, or as I think Orwell called it, uh, war minus the weapons. Mm -hmm. There is um, the, 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 there is certainly uh, that aspect to it. We can plot the rise of the Greek games, uh, um, and it's interesting to see the way that rise of the games uh, maps onto the development of uh, the Greek political system more generally. If I can just give you a brief, um, brief bit of um, chronology. Olympic Games are founded in 776 BC, at least that's the traditional uh, date for the, for the Greeks. Nothing uh, of significance for the whole of Greece for another 200 years. And then within 10 years, three more big major games uh, leap into being. 582, Nemea, and the Isthmus, uh, and, uh, uh, sorry, 584, the Pythian Games at Delphi, and then 582 uh, or thereabouts, the, the Nemean and, uh, and Isthmian Games. So there is a big explosion in athletics, and it coincides with the full development of the Greek city-state as, um, uh, as an autonomous entity. Greece is made up of, of large numbers of independent uh, city-states. There is a recognition, I think, at this stage, both of collective Greekness and of separateness. And there's always this tension at Olympia between coming together and, uh, and pulling apart. What it does do, I think, however, <clears throat> is allows people to compete, allows people to uh, compete on behalf of their city, achieve um, eminence for themselves and for their city, just like, like nowadays, uh, but to do it in a, a peaceful mean, a peaceful way. It's worth bearing in mind, however, that peaceful means different things to different people that you're competing not by going to war, but you're competing very, very ruthlessly. And probably nothing in modern athletics rivals the ruthlessness of Greek sport as, as an absolute pursuit of, uh, of pole position. So they, they were quite bloody. Far. They were quite bloody affairs, weren't they? Oh, yes, uh, some were. 
the Greeks had, a, had um, a, a rest, two kinds of wrestling. Uh, they had um, uh, standing up wrestling, where basically you, you throw your opponent, throw him three times, and, uh, and, and you've won, he's lost. Uh, they also had something called the pancration, which is as vicious as you can possibly get. It's standing wrestling, it's ground wrestling, it's gouging. There are virtually anything that you can do to cause pain to another person, uh, you can do in the, uh, the pancration. It's recommended not to kill people, but obviously <laughs> it's a... Um, but there is actually a, there's an interesting case of someone in the 6th century BC who actually dies during the course of the pancration, <coughs> and uh, he still gets the, uh, the olive crown because his opponent surrenders uh, a minute before he dies. But yes, it can be. And, and, and knives were forbidden, I think, weren't they? Mm, yes, uh, that's right. Yeah. Well, so to what extent were these uh, uh, participants, uh, they were men only, or predominantly men, at least yeah. in Athens, uh, to what extent were they also training for the army? I mean, was this a sort of as opposed to being trained in the army, or were they also being trained in the army? And mm -hmm. I, I think there is always, it's never sort of um, directed quite so precisely, but certainly there is always a link between athletics and the military. Uh, you see this actually acknowledged in, at a very high level in some cases. An Olympic victor in Sparta won the right to fight in the front line next to the Spartan king. So there is always a link between, between militarism and athletics. But this is a world in which citizens vote for war, but you don't normally send out an army to fight and die for you. You vote, then you put on your armor, and then you fight and die. So there's always a feeling that the athletic body is, is the, the superlative physical training for, um, for war. And it's only when athletics becomes too specialized that you get people like Aristotle grumbling uh, oh. about the way in which athletics interferes. But if you look at the uh, the, the, the role of athletics uh, in the Greek world, everywhere the Greeks go, there is athletics. Uh, they move west to Sicily, up into Italy. They move east when Alexander conquers Turkey and then as far as the, the Hindu Kush. And everywhere the Greeks go, they plant a city. And everywhere they plant a city, they always have a gymnasium for general exercise and they always have um, a wrestling area for the, the, for, for, for the combat sports. So there is always a feeling that athletics is central to, uh, to Greek life and always a link, uh, tacit or explicit, with military. Okay, well, let's talk about the preparation for the Olympics. <coughs> the Olympics taking uh, place every four years. Uh, during these four years, the preceding four years, people were training for these. Mm -hmm. this, this was done in the gymnasia? Yes, it, it, it would be. Is it, is it uh, the, the, tell us a bit about the culture of the gymnasium, because as I understand it, the gymnasium was very central to Greek life, at mm -hmm. least the Greek life of the upper classes. Yes. Gymnasium, I think, means uh, undressed or unclad. Yes. And um, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about the preparation in the gymnasium. Yeah, yeah. We can perhaps come, <clears throat> we can come to nudity, I hope, at the, uh, at the end. We, we have a little here, but uh, I have lots more naked men. Uh, on, on the, the, the <coughs> slideshow for those who want them. The, um, uh, the, 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 it, this is very much central to, uh, to civic life. It's also very central to the uh, definition of a citizen. The Athenians had a law, we learned from a 4th century BC source, 
that a slave could not strip and participate in athletics at the gymnasium. So, so it's an important marker of the difference between the citizen status and the slave and the citizen body and the slave, because these things, of course, map on to the body as well as, uh, as, well as to civic status. Um, it does, however, um, play differently uh, depending on where you are in Greek society. If you imagine yourself as a farmer who has to go out and, uh, and sow the fields, harvest, etc., for much of the year, uh, you're not actually going to be in a position to, uh, to participate in, uh, in athletics. If you imagine yourself as someone who has to sell, people who work in the marketplace, cobblers, these are people who don't have the time. And in fact, one of the things that the Greeks note, our, our elite Greek sources note, is the pallor of these people because they work indoors, whereas the elite male is out in the, uh, out in the polis, visible and therefore exposed to the, the sun. But for the elite, it's a, a, a very important way of passing your time. And I guess it's also an important way of marking the fact that you have time to pass, that you're there, visible, and in, uh, and in public among your peers. But the, the, sorry, sorry, no. uh, the, the, the gymnasium was not just for sports. As, no. as, as I understand it, uh, the whole ethos of Greek society was an antagonism. So yeah. the, the, yes, ab- the, absolutely, the yeah. uh, disputative yeah. discussions. Yeah. You're, going, you're, going to, you're going to do uh, an awful lot beside. Um, obviously, the young are going to be exercising. They're going to be, they're going to be wrestling. Actually, not just wrestling. Um, they're also going to be doing things like um, practicing for the pentathlon, throwing the, uh, the discus, throwing the, uh, the, the, the javelin. We have an interesting case from the end of the 5th century BC of a boy who's throwing the javelin. Um, it's, a, it's a hypothetical case, but it's a case of a boy who's throwing the javelin, and uh, he, unfortunately, uh, the javelin sticks into someone and kills him. And the debate is about whose fault it is, the boy who runs into the javelin or the boy, boy who throws it. So all of this is going to be going on. The older men are going to be watching, and people are going to be um, using it as, as, as a major place for, um, for social contact and, of course, for sexual contact mm-hmm. as well. This is where we get into, among other things, nudity, because you're not merely, uh, and do bear in mind this is men only, uh, uh, no women are, are, are present, but what you have is a, um, uh, a world in which young males who are inherently sexually attractive are exercising, uh, oiled, bear that in mind too, uh, oiled and, um, and older men are, are watching it. It's a great spectator sport. Uh, we know <clears throat> that it was also um, quite a, a, a place for, um, for, for, for chat-up. There's a passage in um, Aristophanes where he talks about um, his success as a comic poet. And he says, I never took advantage of my, uh, my, my, my success. I was very modest. I'm the best comic poet you've got, but I never took advantage of it. I never went round the gymnasia trying it on with the boys. And the assumption is, obviously, that if you've got some sort of status, one useful way of exercising this, this status, um, as with older successful men in any society, is to hit on uh, young and sexually attractive uh, but, people. But this trying it on with the boys was, was also part of a larger scheme, was mm. it not? Because, yeah. uh, I, I mean, I'm very surprised to learn that uh, Plato and Aristotle were uh, 
frequenting the gymnasium mm. were in fact sportsmen, both of them. Mm. Uh, Plato was apparently quite good at wrestling, as was Socrates. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that there was, uh, I think I can't remember in which of his dialogues, one of them, possibly Lysis. Mm -hmm. uh, it starts off by uh, uh, Socrates asking people what they were up to in the gymnasium, and they mm. said, well, we're debating words. Yes. Yeah. Rather than... Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a, my favourite dialogue of Plato in this respect is the Carmides, a beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful work. And Socrates and Critias are sitting in the gymnasium. They're sitting on the bleachers watching the, uh, watching the athletics. And Socrates is just back from battle. He's been uh, on campaign uh, up north. And they start chatting about a, a range of things. And this becomes the setting for a philosophical dialogue. A young man named Carmides comes in. Uh, Carmides is the most beautiful young man in Athens of his day. Uh, he enters like Marilyn Monroe. He enters, and he's, there's a big, um, uh, there's a wave of older men following him, all bidding for his, uh, his attention. But they sit down, and Socrates starts to talk to Carmides, and he starts to ask him about modesty, about self-control. And this becomes um, a dialogue, and presumably, although this is a staged dialogue by Plato, along with everything else that you would do in the gymnasium, you would also engage in very serious debate on everything that a man of your class would debate. Obviously, philosophy, <clears throat> because philosophy is, is a big thing in 5th century Athens, but I guess as well it would be politics. Uh, all, all sorts of things that one would chat. So, so would, it be, would it be true to say that you can't imagine a, a gymnasium without the philosophy and the knowledge mm. uh, any more than you could imagine without the athletics? Would yeah, that be... I, I think that's absolutely right. And mm. not just in the individual cities. We do know that by the, um, by the end of the 5th century BC, the, um, at Olympia, <clears throat> as, well as, um, uh, as well as the athletic competitions, we also have um, set-piece speeches by some of the big intellectuals of the, uh, of the day. And obviously, there is a market even there. There is an audience for almost anything that you want mm -hmm. to offer by way of, uh, mm -hmm. of excellence. So there's also an intellectual side at, um, at Olympia as well. Okay, well, let's talk a bit about uh, beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, beauty was also a concept very dear to the, uh, yeah. as it is with us, of course. Uh, they uh, admired beautiful bodies. Uh, I suppose they admired mainly male bodies, but there must have been some admiration for female bodies, I should think. Uh, I th yes, <laughs> uh, the, the Greeks did reproduce, after all. Uh, so, um, uh, but yes, I mean, there, there is. Can, uh, yeah, let us yeah, just talk yeah, briefly, yeah, because I think everyone yeah, would be yeah. interested to hear that. Why were women actually excluded? In yeah. fact, women were also excluded in the 1896 Olympics. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's only yeah. in the past 30 years that they've yes, been included. Absolutely, yes. In, in many respects, the Olympic revivalists were much closer to the Greeks than we are now, because we freely allow women to compete in, in any sport. If you go back to de Coubertin, Baron de Coubertin, the, uh, uh, the initiator, <coughs> at least at international level, of uh, the um, uh, Olympic movement, um, he felt very strongly that women should not participate in athletics. There was a role for women in the Olympics. Women were there to hand out prizes of valor to men who achieved things with their, with, with their bodies. And I think he is then picking up on the British Olympic movement, which predates the uh, international Olympic movement, 
places like Much Wenlock in the, uh, uh, in the Cotswolds, where in fact there is the, a, a very firm emphasis on male athletics, though there are, there, there are competitions for women, but male athletics, and, and, and females usually give the, give the prizes. Well, just, just to stay with that for a moment, we'll go back to beauty. Uh, the Kubertown was actually, uh, uh, in many ways, uh, uh, extremely right-wing, wasn't he? And he was his Anglo-Saxon uh, angle on the game. It was very much an Anglo-Saxon angle. It was very much inspired by uh, rugby, yes. uh, I mean, the public school by Matthew Arnold. Yes. Um, and the, I think the first Olympic Games were largely made of, of uh, waspish Americans and, and Oxbridge graduates, wasn't it? Yes, uh, yes ab absolutely. De Coubertin, I'm sure you all know, was, was um, strongly influenced by the, um, uh, the French failure in the Franco-Prussian War. He was, uh, his desire was to, um, uh, to stimulate a resurgence of France. And so although eventually this turns into an international movement, the place from which he comes is much more, uh, much more nationalist. A lot of his thinking uh, is, although, what, um, uh, although a lot of the ideas of the Olympic movement are projected onto the Greeks, the Greeks are meant to, are, are turned into the source for many of the ideas. If you look at uh, a lot of the ideas, they are actually English, mm -hmm. uh, and they're not sort of, they're, they're not, mass English, they're very much products of the English public school system, so it's elite Englishness that is driving the, uh, uh, the, the, the French agenda. And if one looks at things like um, the attitude towards professionalism, uh, which has been a big problem for the Olympic uh, movement from, from the very first, the attitude that they took towards professionalism was to a large extent an elitist attitude, and it was actually pushing against the thrust of the Greek uh, Olympic Games, and it involved a rereading of Greek history in order to turn it into uh, turn Greece into a nation of English gentlemen. I know that sounds like parody, but there is a strong element of, of that distortion. Yes, I'm, I'm very surprised that the media in Britain don't make more of the fact that Britain had a very very important role mm. to play in the in the genesis of the new uh, Olympic Games. Let's go back to beauty. So mm. what they, they admired beauty. What is there any sort of guide to what they liked uh, mm -hmm. uh, with proportion, symmetry, size? What, what, yeah. what, what was it? Well, we, we don't have, I think, any... If I can just take you back. <coughs> I've got some bodies here, as I promised. Uh, there we are. Okay. Um, we, we do find that um, uh, there, is no, there is no single consensus, but from at least the 5th century onwards, we get a lot of discussion of the nature of beauty. And it's in relation to art, but it's also strongly philosophical. Uh, it's not an abstract aesthetic ideal, but there is a strong emphasis on things like proportion, balance, um, cosmos, order, orderliness, eucosmia, correct order. <clears throat> All of that is, is there from, from very early on. <clears throat> and by the time we get to the middle of the fifth century. This is um, the work of Polycletus. It's not actually Polycletus's work. It's, uh, uh, it's a copy because the, the, originals, uh, uh, the originals don't survive. But if you look at this, you can see what Polycletus is working with. And again, it's a strongly philosophical idea. Polycletus uses the, 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 the notion of the canon. 
and it's very strongly uh, very strongly based on symmetria, symmetry. And that doesn't <coughs> mean absolute mirror imaging of the body so that the right and left side uh, are identical. <coughs> Quite the reverse. It involves a balance between the, the, the body with different aspects in play on uh, uh, different um, sides of the body. If you look at this, this man, you'll see that one of the legs, the right leg, is load-bearing. It's, it's tensed. The muscle is tensed. The other leg is relaxed. <clears throat> so you've got uh, a kind of balance between those two, uh, those two sides. You also have, if you, if you look, you'll see that the, the hips are uh, at an angle. So there is a kind of balance between the upper and lower body in terms of the, uh, the angling. This is not just, I think, about aesthetics. It's also about the body as being itself um, a, a possible locus of order, and order being an important way of, uh, of judging the body. So I think these are very strongly philosophical concepts in that they also relate to the way in which the Greeks think about, say, life in the city, and they also relate to the way in which the Greeks think about the inside of the body. Uh, as you know, the Greeks have a medical theory of uh, the humors, uh, that the body is made up of different, um, uh, different substances which must be held in a kind of um, equilibrium for health to be achieved. And so I think what one has is political ideals. I mean, obviously, one shouldn't oversimplify, but political ideals which relate to order, ideals relating to the physicality of the body, the inner makeup of the body, which are about balance and order. We also have um, ideas about, uh, about the psyche, about the, the mind and the soul, which should be uh, also held in order. And all of this, of course, maps on to the aesthetics of the, uh, of the, the body of the, of the athlete. And the athlete is actually the supreme example of what the human body uh, can achieve. It's the human body at perfection. Let me ask uh, you, as a neurobiologist, first of all, you know, you know there's an area of the brain mm -hmm. which is somewhat specialized for perceiving bodies. Mm -hmm. There's another area of the brain which is specialized for perceiving faces. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm slightly puzzled because with Greek sculpture, and by the way, this has been copied many times, which is itself quite interesting, um, the, the, the body is stay in the mind, but not the faces, mm -hmm. with men. Yeah. There is definitely a Greek female head. Yeah. Would you like to comment on that? Yes, the, well, if I can sort of step back, yes. at, least, at least for, for this, this early period, with <coughs> reference to, the, uh, with reference to the, uh, the body, there is a, the, the Greeks very early on uh, develop an interest in the male body. And from the late 6th century BC, you can see lots of male nudes in public space. By that I mean statues. They have very strong taboos on nudity in public space in ancient Greece with reference to the, the active human body. But you can see naked males from the, the late 6th um, uh, century onwards. Late 5th century, we're starting to see the partially clothed female and by the fourth century, you're starting to see female nudes. So they do perceive male and female bodies very differently. <coughs> and the, 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 there are differential paces of development in the perception of, the, uh, uh, of the, the body. I think with something like this one, 
Um, you're quite right, I think, the, 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 the heads very often, the, the faces are uh, very often uh, highly stylized. I think the bodies are too. Yes. Uh, the bodies, it has been said to me, you would know better than I, Samir, that that musculature at the bottom of the six-pack, just, um, uh, just round about the diaphragm, that that musculature doesn't work. Now, I've never worked out, uh, so <clears throat> I've never had to test on my own body whether any of this is, is plausible. But there is something posed about yes. this, and I think yeah. it's the pose that focuses on the, the body. Polyclactus, I believe, said that uh, beauty or the proportion in, in designing, in, in executing a sculpture is, lies in numbers. Yes. And it's quite interesting that, that if you look at uh, symmetry, mm -hmm. when people look at symmetry, it's, it's, it's part of the parietal cortex that becomes very active. The parietal cortex is involved in arithmetic formulations. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the beauty, it's, it's uh, somewhere quite else, which I'll come back mm -hmm. to. But the fact that this uh, polyclitus thing, I mean, the, the original polyclitus is, is gone. Yes. And these are all copies, Greek and Roman. Yeah. Uh, the fact that, that there are so many copies which are very similar to each other implies mm -hmm. that there was a standard of beauty which people uh, enjoyed mm -hmm. at mind. How did he, is it known how he settled on these proportions? I, I, I don't know how he settled on it. I'm, I'm not sure uh, that um, uh, that anyone actually has the full narrative, because of course what one tends to get with these, uh, with with much of the writing on sculptors, is anecdotal mentions in in our sources. But he is, I think, he's the heir to a tradition, and so um, he comes up with the canon, but he doesn't come up with it in a vacuum. Uh, there's been something like 50 years of of thought about this, mm -hmm. at least, which has gone in. What makes him different, I think, is that he wrote about it. <coughs> and uh, he lives in a century when the Greeks are starting to make life much more technical. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole range of things. It's when the big medical texts start to be written, the fifth century. It's when they, uh, there, uh, there are lots of advances in mathematics. There are uh, advances in things like uh, oratory, warfare they start to study. This is the age of, of what they call the techna, the, 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 the skill-based study. And I think what makes him uh, so successful is he doesn't just do it, but I think he proselytizes and explains it so that people can actually ex uh, experience the mm. principles objectively mm. as well as subjectively experiencing the aesthetics. There is, to me, a certain contradiction in, in the fact that, that uh, you've got male bodies, you've got the, depicting the beauty of the male body, and, and uh, you aroused desire, but it's frowned upon as well, is it not? Yes, yeah. They are, there, are, there are some really interesting ambiguities. Uh, I suppose sexual desire is always a complicated thing in all societies, but there are some fascinating complexities here. If I can just take you forward. I'd like to come back to him at this time. Uh, there is, um, this, this is 520 BC. And um, <clears throat> those, um, uh, those nappy-like things, those loincloths, they've not been painted on. We do have other um, uh, vases from that period. <clears throat> the Greeks discover nudity. They don't, um, they don't just so suddenly start wrestling naked. They actually decide that they're going to move 
from clothed athletics to, to naked uh, athletics. Uh, may I interrupt yeah. you though, yeah. why did they decide that? Because it's, it is, I mean, I would say it's uncomfortable to mm. wrestle in the nude, I would yeah. have thought. Yeah. I'm not a and wrestler actually, yeah. myself. Well. I, I think probably more uncomfortable to run in the nude. Yes. Because, uh, you know, not, not, not all of your body stops moving at the same time, obviously. <laughs> so, so, so why did they suddenly decide that? It, it, the, the, the debate has been, has been endless uh, about it. They do, and some of it may, may, may be entirely aesthetic. Some of it may just be the, the, the feeling that this is the best way to enjoy the, the body in all of its beauty, both uh, aesthetic and, uh, and erotic. But it becomes for the Greeks not just an accidental byproduct of athletics, but it becomes the essence of athletics. It's not that you happen to strip it makes you Greek that you take your clothes off and, uh, and uh, wrestle or, or run. Uh, the, the Greeks talk about um, the, uh, their eastern neighbors, <clears throat> and the Greeks have a, Greeks have a nice catch-all term for, um, for those who don't speak Greek. They call them barbaros, barbaroi, and it's the origin of our word barbarian. What it indicates is that these people don't speak in any way that um, real people like us can, uh, can understand. So. There is, a, there is always the insistence that the Greek takes his clothes off and is comfortable to be seen naked wrestling in public where barbarians, uh, barbarians won't. The Romans never borrow this. Romans never, are never happy with, uh, with this approach to, uh, to nudity. So it does become central to athletics. But at the same time, you've got the fact that you do not accept nudity in public space. Uh, and even semi-nudity, they're very uncomfortable with. There's um, an attack by um, uh, an orator called Eschines on um, an opponent called uh, T. Marcos, uh, a successful attack. He manages to destroy him, <clears throat> both as a politician and as a citizen. But he talks about him in the assembly um, speaking and says he threw himself about like a wrestler and you could actually see parts of his body exposed. And the idea that you as a citizen might be in public space with parts of your body on display is profoundly, uh, uh, profoundly unsettling, profoundly repugnant. But take that citizen, put them in the palaestra, recontextualize it as males among males doing healthy athletics, and suddenly it becomes uh, OK. Is there any sense of, uh, I mean, formal sense of uh, a desire without satisfaction? Formalizing that? Uh, the, I suppose the, the nearest one would get to it would be something like the platonic approach to, um, uh, to uh, desire. Um, the, uh, Plato, as you know, or rather Socrates is probably the arch example. <coughs> There's a story told by the famous Athenian politician Alcibiades that he wanted to seduce Socrates. And this is a, this is a very shocking thing for a man to say because it's older men who pursue, young men are pursued. And he talks about wrestling naked with, um, uh, with Socrates. And the idea is that Socrates should find this agreeable and one thing should lead to another. Uh, and it doesn't, because Socrates is a man who, um, who is imbued with self-restraint to an unusual degree. Within Plato itself, of course, the whole idea of beauty becomes sublimated so that you begin with the beauty of the flesh you move to the beauty of ideas, and you end up with the beauty of, uh, uh, of philosophy. 
the reality, I think, is often rather more complicated in that we all desire athletes. And I think, so I was going to show you, show you a couple of texts, but I'll, I'll give you the quote instead. Um, we all, we, um, th there is a strong emphasis on the desirability of athletes. And the victory songs of Pindar in praise of young athletes will frequently present them as sexually attractive. And nobody seems at all bothered by the fact that you present them in that way. There is um, a lot of emphasis on their desirability. But at the same time, athletes tend to be associated with asceticism. It's said of um, uh, one um, uh, famous uh, uh, athlete, Icus of Tarentum, that uh, while he was in training, he avoided anything that remotely smacked of sexuality. No women, no boys, uh, complete, complete abstinence. There is a man named Claytomachus, one of the most successful athletes of the fourth century BC. And Claytomachus, um, apparent, well, at least according to Plutarch, um, Claytomachus, if, the, if mention of sex came up uh, at, at a drinking party, Claytomachus would stand up and leave the room. <clears throat> There's another story that's told by our sources about a famous courtesan named Laius, who um, desired a famous athlete. And he um, uh, wanted to marry her, and because she was so influential, wanted to marry him because he, he, she was so influential, he agreed to it, but found his uh, found a way of avoiding the actual sexual contact with this uh, this courtesan. So athletes have this ambiguous status; they're always inherently beautiful. Um, uh, they are the human body at its absolute peak, desirable by definition, and especially in a world which finds. Uh, finds men desirable, but at the same, and of course, presumably also a, a great catch, and therefore uh, free to free to make their uh, make whatever choices they they choose. But at the same time, they're associated with abstinence, and that, of course, I think is part of this iconic role yes. as the athlete. The whole Greek culture is a culture of contradictions. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But then, show I us think so are all. So are all. Yes, you can show us some more pictures before, <laughs> yeah. before I turn to moral beauty. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's let's go back. And I. They're uh, also the, similar. The these forest, they are very similar. You'll notice, though, if I can take you, that's the diadumenos. Worth, worth noting, actually, the way in which they they perceive the athlete. Notice <coughs> this is not a boxer boxing. Um, we don't know what this man is doing, but it's at a moment of rest. It's at a moment of triumph. This is the successful athlete. This isn't someone uh, engaged in the grueling competition. Even the Doruforos, um, the, the right hand is for the, the spear, obviously. He's not actually about to throw. He's in a position of relaxation. Um, but the, and this one too, this is the Apoxumenos. This is 4th century BC. And what you would do, of course, to clean yourself is you rub yourself with oil. And then you have a thing that the Romans called a strigil. And you scrape yourself, scrape, scrape the oil off and, and clean yourself down. And what you have there um, is, is the man scraping himself down. <clears throat> You'll notice, however, that what he is, uh, uh, what, what you've got within a century is a change in the aesthetic ideal, at least within this statue. The musculature is much mm -hmm. reduced. The torso <clears throat> is much less, uh, much less pronounced, arguably more realistic. Mocha, I'll come back to in a moment. <clears throat> but the, um, this is the townly discobolos, and this is the this is um, a copy of the um, uh, of the uh, 
famous discus thrower of the fifth, the fourth, the fifth century uh, st- um, uh, sculptor Myron. <clears throat> now, uh, copy. There are loads of copies around, and this this copy alone would form the subject of uh, a, a, a lecture or even a, a conference for hours or days because there is such an intricate story uh, behind it. But here too, notice the way the body is presented. This is this is uh, energy stored. It's not energy in the process of being released. It's the backswing. It's not a realistic backswing. Um, uh, uh, my friend Mark Golden, who's an expert on uh, uh, on these things, uh, tells me that at the 1896 Olympics, um, they tried uh, in Athens. They uh, it, they insisted on throwing the discus this way. Uh, that is from a standing start, and like that. <clears throat> Within two uh, Olympiads, they'd moved on to something where, if you wanted, you could do the Greek discus, or you could throw a proper discus where you actually get torsion into your body. But the thing to note here, I think, is again the way you've got this balance between the tense, the tense muscle, and the uh, and the the non-tense muscle. Interesting play between parts of the body. The beautiful semicircle of this body. And then that arm, so that in fact, as well as having the semicircle, you've got this wonderful core uh, firmness to the to, to, to the statue. Uh, but notice, it's tension, torsion, it's energy, but not energy released. And it's always this sense, I think, of potential. And that may be an important part of the aesthetics. Not merely beauty, but beauty with potential stored, potential at rest, but always capable of doing more. You know, it's quite interesting that that, that uh, beauty is represented in a very specific part. Well, well not that, that's not true. The the experience of beauty, regardless of its source, correlates with one very specific part of the brain, which is uh, in the medial frontal cortex, mm. uh, front end of the of the frontal lobes, buried inside, which is. Uh, full of dopaminergic activity. Mm-hmm. And the permanent dopaminergic neurons not only respond when rewarded, mm-hmm. but apparently respond even more at the expectation of the reward. Mm. Ah. So in a sense, <coughs> yeah. the, the, the uh, dangling of yes. something yeah. in front of you and then withholding that, yeah. of course, up to a point, and then yeah. the, the interest wanes, but, but might have been a very interesting uh, uh, Rules used by the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You are going to show us some more slides. I want to move on to moral beauty. Um, yes, okay. I'll, I just wanted to show you one of the most interesting slides. Um, the, you can find <coughs> this at the British Museum at the moment. It's just been brought in from Mozia in Sicily. Um, it is the so-called Mozia charioteer. And um, uh, there is a big debate, uh, some of which I witnessed recently, as to whether it is a charioteer or not. The reason that people see it as a charioteer, possibly, is because of resemblance, some resemblance in the clothing to the Delphic charioteer. Um, this, of course, is not the beautiful male body, because charioteers do not use their body in the way that athletes do. Uh, this is basically a racing driver. Uh, but of course, notice again, a racing driver, bless you, a racing driver in, uh, uh, in um, uh, again, at rest, this is a triumphal position. The Motya charioteer, if he is one, is the ultimate eroticized statue because you can see the genitals there 
at the, uh, at the front. This is a diaphanous, uh, diaphanous outfit. And the buttocks are very prominent because he's uh, uh, bending forward. This is a highly eroticized male statue. I myself am largely convinced by those who see it as not a charioteer. But if it is a charioteer, it's a very, very erotic charioteer indeed. Um, uh, yes, def definitely um, something different. And, and why, why, why did they wear tunics when, when they were charioteers as opposed to uh, mm. running? Is, is there a good reason? That we're, we're never told. I suppose it, it may well be that it's because this is not actually about the body. It's actually it's much more about uh, about skill. Um, it may be well it may well be as well, of course, that if you're naked and thrown from a chariot, rather like falling from a motorbike, yeah. you're, you, you know you need levers or, or the uh, the equivalent. So some of it may be self-protection right. as well. If you're going to tie the reins behind your waist, sorry, tie the reins behind your waist or um, uh, or um, uh, otherwise sort of try and uh, try and um, attach them to your body. You do actually want something between you and the, the rain, so maybe a safety thing. Also, practical reasons. Okay, let's turn to to moral beauty uh, now. I think there's somewhere in the Iliad uh, someone who says, "Look, uh, I think it was a fight between two Greek states. One, is, there's a guy who says, "Look, don't do it because only the rich men are going to benefit out of this. Why don't you make peace with them?" But the rich men, not liking him say to him, look, if you carry on, we will expose your ugliness. Mm. Because, and when we expose your ugliness, people will realize that what you're saying is not true. Mm. There was a, a, a conflation, well, perhaps conflation is the wrong word, but there was certainly an association of uh, physical beauty with uh, spiritual beauty and also with goodness. Yes. Uh, can we talk yes, about that? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> I don't think this is exclusive to the Greeks. There's a certain amount of yeah. research been done in modern societies to suggest that people respond much more positively to those they perceive as, uh, as, as aesthetically pleasing. Um, but, uh, but certainly the Greeks, uh, the Greeks have a word kalos, and it means, uh, it means beautiful, but it also means fine and good and noble. And there is a constant crossover between the ethical and the... Uh, uh, and the um, physical aspect of it. The term that the Greeks use for um, a decent man is kalos kagathos, a fine and good man, or a beautiful and good man. And so there is always this feeling that there is a link between physical beauty and, uh, uh, and moral beauty. They're aware, because the, uh, the Greeks live in the real world, they're aware that there are people who look the part and aren't. And some of our earliest satirical Greek texts take up this idea that you can have someone who smells good, looks good, has nice hair, dresses well, but is actually worthless, whereas you can have someone who's bandy-legged and, uh, and ugly, but actually is a, is a good fighter. So they're also aware of the, um, uh, of the potential gap between physical and, um, uh, and uh, uh, ethical. But nonetheless, this tendency to conflate them persists. And I do think that we see it very firmly in these pictures of the athletes, and the athletes as being a, uh, a beautiful object um, as well as a beautiful subject, someone who um, has um, pushed himself to the extreme, who has achieved all that a human body can achieve, 
uh, and has done it by dedication, by ruthlessness, uh, by, um, by skill, by training. And it is worth bearing in mind <clears throat> that, of course, these are not just bodies. These are um, highly trained um, athletes who are um, who've devoted a lot of time to acquiring the skill as well. It's interesting that, that uh, in, in our societies, I gather from uh, social psychology research, that if you're a very good-looking man, a very good-looking woman, you're much more likely to get a lenient uh, sentence, mm-hmm. yeah. being let off, uh, yeah. and things like that. Now, it's also interesting that, that in, in the brain, mm-hmm. um, the area which is, a, which is active when one experiences beauty, be it musical or mm-hmm. visual, is the same area that's active during the experience of moral beauty. Mm-hmm. So, if you give people uh, statements such as, uh, this man raped this young girl, mm-hmm. which is a morally repugnant thing, but this man sacrifices money for these children, which is uh, morally uh, being on the high ground, you'd find that activity in that region which I'm talking about uh, goes up with a morally acceptable statement and mm-hmm. goes down with morally unacceptable statements. So there is uh, the, 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 the association from Greek times to today of a beauty mm-hmm. with uh, <coughs> goodness and mm-hmm. reality yeah. find some reflection in the, in the way in which the brain is organized. It's not entirely yeah. uh, fortuitous. No. no. I think the Greeks are also aware as well that, um, uh, that various kinds of abuse actually causes physical degeneration. And so things like drunkenness, uh, a life spent in, uh, uh, in various kinds of self-indulgence, they feel, will also show itself. There are lots of texts that suggest that, um, that dis- dis- a dissolute life will ultimately tell in the face and the body. Uh, presumably so in the gymnasia <coughs> and in the, at the Olympic Games, uh, uh, drinking was not allowed or frowned upon. Uh, the, that's much more difficult, I think. Certainly, an athlete in training will not drink. And you had to arrive as Olympia um, a substantial period. I think it's something like a month before the games in order to uh, to start training. So I think abstemiousness is built in. It's not necessarily built in to the Apre games. Uh, we do we have a nice uh, story from a fourth century source of um, uh, uh, an Athenian politician who has he wins the chariot race. And of course this isn't um, uh, it's not athletics in the straight sense. But we have um, uh, a reference to um, his celebratory party that was held on the coast of, of Attica. And it has lots of drink, lots of um, uh, women of ill repute. So, <clears throat> so I don't think that, um, I think when one is in training, abstemiousness is absolute. Mm-hmm. But um, I assume that the, the people drank at the Olympics. Not athletes, but I assume that the... Uh, oh, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, look, there's a one point which, which, which I should have brought up, uh, which I forgot about, which is uh, talking about moral beauty and physical beauty. It is true, is it not, that the ancient Olympics were associated with the gods, mm-hmm. were they not? No. And this is, I mean, there's a very strong religious element. If you can tell us briefly about that, mm-hmm. because I want to move yeah. to one more, one more topic which we have got to Before cover, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, sure. uh, yeah. Anything that Samir and I have missed... Obviously, you can. We can uh, bring up in you, discussion. You bring up. Um, the I, I think there are there are several things I think that um, if you were a time traveller coming from say the fifth century or sixth century BC, several things um, that you would notice as different 
uh, if you were suddenly plonked into the east end of London for um, uh, Olympics 2012. Uh, one of them, I think, would be the absence of nudity, <clears throat> the fact that all of these men are overdressed. Uh, I think another thing that you would notice is how um, soppy the modern games are, uh, that you have second and third places. I think they would regard that as, as, as really for wusses. Uh, and I think the, the third thing that they would notice is the secularization of the games. There's lots of ritual, and ritual, of course, has been stacked up uh, miles high over the, the history of the modern games. Lots of ritual, but, it would, um, but it's secular ritual. Whereas for the Greeks, you began with a sacrifice. The winner of the, of the foot race at Olympia had the honor of lighting the fire on the altar of Zeus at Olympia. So there is a feeling of absolute seamless continuity between the athletic activity and the, uh, uh, and the ritual. You begin with a sacrifice. You only win because the god win, wants you to win. It is always assumed that you win at Olympia or you win at Delphi because the god wants you to, wants you to win. So there is always a feeling that, that you are engaged in a religious activity. Now, in order to understand what that means, you need to bear in mind that this is not uh, a spiritual view of religion. It is about communication with the gods, but it's not about being in a state of grace. If, say, you're struck by lightning while running at Olympia, uh, uh, at a, a divine festival, you don't have any blessedness in the afterlife. You're as dead as anyone else is. Um, there is no feeling of a state of grace, but there is a feeling that all of this is being done for the God. And it reflects, I think, two things. The first is that the it's assumed that, the, that firstly, I guess I should say, Greek gods, of course, you all know, have human form. It's assumed that the gods, because they have human form, also have human emotions, and they like spectacle. They enjoy things. So I think the gods are being offered something which will please them. But what they're being offered is not just entertainment. They're being offered the human body at its uh, most perfect. And if you look at what happens in Greek worship, you always offer the gods what is perfect. Uh, you cannot, for instance, sacrifice to the god a cow which has had a yoke on it, an ox which has had an, a yoke on it, because it is no longer marked out. Things must be marked out as separate for the gods. And I think so many of the, the, the competitive aspects of ancient religion are not just about entertaining the gods, though I think that's part of it, but they're also about giving the gods what is superb, what is outstanding. And I think they would be very surprised that not only do we not take our clothes off, but we just do it for the fun of it uh, and, the, um, uh, and, and the glory. There's more to it. Well, before I, I just I want to bring up the question of reward briefly because we're running out of time, but I, it's perhaps worth emphasizing, just to, to emphasize how little our attitudes have changed, that the, the Lenny Riefenstahl film uh, of the 1936 uh, Olympics in Berlin, which, which was, of course, is a very, very uh, unpleasant, uh, one of the most unpleasant Olympics. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, that really, really Riefenstahl film, the second part is entitled uh, uh, Fest der uh, Schönheit, the mm -hmm. Festival of Beauty. And yeah. apparently, it's been voted by a number of uh, uh, newspapers and by the Venice Film Festival as one of the ten 
best films ever made. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it is actually uh, stripped of its political, yeah. repugnant political sensation. It is, in fact, concentrating on the beauty of the human body, mm -hmm. which in this case is clad, but nevertheless is in, yeah. in dynamic movement. Now, um, let me just go to, 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 to reward, and, and I'm asking this because we've talked about, uh, so, so I'm trying, as, as an as a, uh, unreformed neurobiologist, I'm trying to um, accommodate all of this within uh, some kind of uh, brain system. And, and if you look at it, uh, the experience of beauty and the experience of desire and the experience of moral beauty all correlate with, with, with activity in a given part of the brain, which is part of the emotional uh, uh, brain. But there's something else that correlates with activity there, which is reward. Mm -hmm. And now I'd like to talk about reward. The, 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 the Greek idea of reward was very different. They didn't have first, second, and third prize. There was one mm -hmm. person who got the reward, and the others were sidelined. Uh, indeed, were they humiliated? There is strong evidence that there's enormous loss of face. Yeah. Of face. Well, maybe you can tell us something briefly about what was the reward mm -hmm. that we should yeah. have been so coveted. Today is the gold medal. Yeah. There is um, there's a passage in um, Book 8 of Herodotus where the Persians are uh, invading, uh, invading Greece. This is 480 BC. They're sweeping down through Greece uh, and they, um, they receive news that the Greeks have not assembled to fight them because the Greeks are celebrating the Olympic Games in the southern half of Greece. And obviously the Persians are puzzled. You know, here you, here you have an army. Uh, Herodotus would say two and a half million. Most people would say perhaps at best 200,000. But it's big and it's invading your country and there you are throwing the discus. Um, one of Xerxes, the Persian king Xerxes' men says to him, what kind of people have you brought us against? And, the, and his point isn't, these are losers, we'll, we'll uh, run them into the dust. He says, these people are competing for what? They're competing not for money. They're competing for a crown. They're competing for glory. How can we possibly beat people whose values are like this? And the idea, obviously, for, for Herodotus is that what you're competing for is the glory, the sense of being the top, the sense of, the sense of being a winner. But you're also, um, uh, the token of that is a crown. And it's worth sort of looking at what the crown is made of. It's vegetable matter. It is a crown made of the wild olive, the kotinos. And all of the, uh, the, the big four games of Greece, what they called the crown games, they're all just a vegetable crown. And you take it home, and obviously you'll press it somehow and, and save it. It matters. But that is, what, that, that is what you get. And clearly for them, the key thing is the, is the glory. If you then strip away and go to the next level, glory is nice, but there are other things which are nice too. And the Greek cities tended to offer quite substantial rewards to uh, successful victors. Uh, the Athenians, for instance, offered cash rewards. And there were other competitions. And obviously, if there are questions afterwards, I can give you some, uh, some information on that. But there are other competitions where they do actually offer, 
objects and uh, and sums of sums of money. So it's, it's but, but the glory is the key thing, yes. and that's what they emphasize yes. in the monuments. It's much more physiological than Kubertan's yeah. yeah. statement that the important thing in the Olympic Games is not to win but to take part. Yeah. The Greeks were much more I, physiological about this. I think months. they would have they would have been shocked. They would have been shocked. Absolutely by that. shocked <laughs> right. that someone who who actually thinks that, um, uh, in fact, nowhere in any of the Greek texts from the early period known to me does anyone use the language of fun for athletics. You know, if you want to have fun, go somewhere else. Here we compete and we compete to win. But the idea that it that it's it's, it's um, about taking part, I think they would have tittered and walked quietly away. <laughs> Thank you. Let me, let me summarize our discussion briefly, uh, and then we'll invite questions and discussion. So uh, the Greek Olympics really were based around concepts of uh, uh, displaced aggression, mm -hmm. uh, beauty, mm -hmm. physical beauty, moral beauty, and reward. Mm -hmm. And of these, it's interesting that three of these four are actually correlate with activity in the same part of the brain. It's a very yeah. nice physiological reflection. Well, so now maybe uh, if anyone has any point to raise or wants to ask any questions, we can uh, or, or uh, dispute points, uh, you can do so. There is uh, some of that. Yes, we have a we have a, uh, a mic. Ah. It's to do with what you were saying about the athletes not, they had to be abstinent. Mm -hmm. And so how much do you think that the Olympic Games would have been a kind of, you know, that it was an intellectual kind of way to be abstinent? Do you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. The it was an exercise in abstinence. That's mm, a better way to put it, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly think there is an element of that. And, um, and, and the fact that this comes up so much, I think, does mean that the athlete is regarded as someone who focuses to an unusual degree. My modern model, for all that it might not have the same connotations of sexual abstinence, would be the tennis player. Uh, because you know the professional tennis player with that sort of that feeling of intense laser-like concentration, but I think it's this sense that you give up, you push everything to the side, um, uh, in order just to to focus on that achievement of, of excellence. I think is is, is core, uh, and I, I guess that the the reality must have been very different, uh, but, but nonetheless. The fact that the myth persists does suggest, I think, that the athlete is saying something to the Greeks about what you're prepared to give up in order to, uh, to achieve. Well, the Greeks use the term arete, which is virtually un untranslatable. We tend to think of, um, we tend to translate with words like virtue, but I think what it means is, is, is excellence, that, that feeling of, uh, of achieving the, uh, the absolute. Being abstinent, mm. would that be triggered in your reward system? Would so it be if you're being absent? Would it be triggered in your reward would system? Would that trigger your? Is that mm. would that work in your reward system? Would you be rewarded for being abstinent? Well, I suppose you could be rewarded. Yes, I mean, uh, yes, I, I suppose there is some kind of reward, but uh, I cannot tell you about the relative. Uh, brain activity when you have that kind of reward as opposed to a reward which you get when you give in. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 I don't know. <laughs>
any other points? Yes. First, I just want to say thank you very much. It was a very interesting discussion, especially the neurobiological points about apparently moral beauty is in the same place as physical beauty. I didn't realize that, so very interesting. I have two questions, if that's okay. The first is about body hair. Body, um, body hair. Mm -hmm. um, I've always been um, confused looking at these statues. They don't have any body hair. Mm -hmm. um, is that because the, the athletes themselves didn't ha they had to wax before they competed? Is was it to do with, if you were nude, you had to be hairless? Or Interesting is it point, just, I've never thought about it. Yeah, um, there is something somewhere in the Greek sources about, about body hair. Uh, and, uh, um, but I'm, try, I'm desperately trying to, to remember what it, what it says. I, I think some, some of this is just the idealizing body. Sure. And, and I think it is, it is sort of flesh, flesh quality that they're after. I think as well, probably athletes do lose physically lose a lot of body hair, because I would, would imagine if you're scraping yourself constantly, there must be a, a natural depilation. But I don't know that they automatically go for depilation. There is, a, there is one case known to me where there is a very hairy man wrestling against uh, a, a man with, without a lot of body hair, and the point seems to be that the man with the body hair um, traps his sweat, and therefore they're wrestling in the sun and there's a lot, of, a lot of sweat attached to the body hair, and it allows him to win because the, you know, the game goes on for so long that the other guy just dehydrates. That's one of those anecdotes that you can believe or, believe or not, and generally I think the answer is probably not. But, but, um, but I don't think that there is a general culture of depilation, but I do suspect that things like the, uh, things like the that man there, I think that probably as you oil and scrape, you probably do lose a, a lot of body hair. But the fact that they talk about hairy athletes suggests that you're not, as a matter of course, trying to lose hair. Okay, thank you. Next question? I do, yes. Um, it's about the equality of the sexes. Mm. Um, you say that um, the statues of female nudes came about a century after no. the statues of male nudes. No. Um, if the desire for women were there, they reproduced, as you said. No. Why? Why did it take so long? And secondly, why were women excluded from the games as mm -hmm. spectators and also as competitors? Yeah. Were they excluded as spectators? Oh, oh yes, yes abs absolutely. Just to complete, yeah. just, just for the... forward. Sorry, please go ahead. Because um, I understand in Sparta, women did actually yeah, have absolutely. to exercise. Yeah. So why was it okay in Sparta but not yeah. for the Olympics? Yeah. Sorry I have to a Spartan interrupt. woman for you with a bit of luck. Um, lots of athletic stuff there. As you can see, I came loaded with stuff. There we are, um, women. That is a Spartan, uh, a Spartan bronze, small Spartan bronze of a of a female runner. Interestingly, um, you know that you notice that she is almost entirely clothed. They tend to. Um, we do know that Olympia, uh, at Olympia, where women um, uh, where women raced, they um, uh, they exposed one breast. Why? I'm I'm not sure. Maybe I guess it may be to make sure there are no men uh, there. But um, uh, I'll, I'll come back to her in, in, in a minute. But the, um, I think that there is a that what you have is this compl complicated attitude to nudity. That nudity is fine and it's beautiful and it's part of the athletic ideal. But the exposure of the male body to the female and the, fe and the female body to the male in public 
is, uh, is I think, an area of um, not, not, not taboo, but it's, it's something to be avoided. And so I think, I think some of it is propriety, just straight <coughs> old-fashioned propriety. We do know that women were not allowed across the Alpheus during the course of the Olympic Games. Women weren't allowed in the sanctuary. There was only one woman allowed to watch the Games, uh, and that was the, um, the priestess of Demeter. Uh, and obviously, you know, your chances of being priestess of Demeter are relatively, relatively small, you know, so... You know, once every 30 years, someone is going to get to to, to get this job. So I, th I think a lot of it is just that it's not right for uh, for uh, females to watch uh, male males nude. <clears throat> I think as well, it goes deeper than that because I think exercise is for men, exposing the body is for men, exposure to the sun is for men. If you look at the pictures of women on bars, as they're always pale, as against as against the males. There are some cultures where this is um, uh, where this isn't the case. Sparta, we do have lots of evidence, and we do have evidence that some people thought this was scandalous. The Athenians, when they mention what the Spartans get up to, women, you know, no better than they ought to be. But if you look at the length of her skirt, mm -hmm. a decent woman ought to have her skirt round her ankles, um, uh, stripping the, the top half of your body, exercising. All of these, I think, are, are things that women shouldn't do. The Spartans aren't alone, however, in this. We do know that there were women's competitions at Elis, that is, at Olympia, and it looks as though they were girl only. You never get, never get mixed sex uh, competitions. And we do know that there were races between girls, and we know that they were divided up by ages. And so, so it, it isn't true that all Greek societies avoided, um, avoided um, female athletics. You start to get women turning up at Olympia um, uh, in the fourth century BC in the chariot race, because of course there you don't actually get up and do it. Normally you pay someone to uh, uh, to do the, uh, the, the the chariot. But there are actually societies that allow women to exercise. But for many many Greek societies, this is just a step too far. They would they would agree with De Coubertin, uh, except they'd regard De Coubertin as too liberal in allowing women to hand, hand out the prizes. The women should just stay at home, I think. Yep. Did they allow barbarians to take part? <laughs> and were they capable of admiring different forms of beauty, different races? Or did they, did they have such a sense of superiority that they were really unable to see that? I, I don't think they ever suppose that the Greeks have a monopoly on beauty. Uh, so that they're willing to accept that the, the beauty uh, occurs in, uh, in all races. They don't, however, um, their idea of an international game is a, is, is a game that allows people from anywhere in Greece. Um, a, a recent modern writer has compared it to the American World Series, that you know, essentially it's, it's a small part of the globe. That, uh, that competes in the uh, in the World Series. And the, the, the modern, uh, the 1896 <coughs> Olympics yeah. were 13 nations. Yeah. Most of them, uh, the British Commonwealth and the French. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. And again, uh, the I, Japanese. I suspect that the Greeks would have been comfortable with that. So I, I think Greekness is very important for the games. And actually, interestingly, the games are very important for Greekness. There is um, a story told by Herodotus about <coughs> um, uh, Alexander, the son of Amintas. Uh, the king of Macedon at the early part, in the early part of the 5th century, known as Alexander the Philhellene, the, the, the friend of Greece. And um, 
Herodotus just throws in this story uh, about Alexander competing at Olympia. And he uses it to prove that the Macedonians are Greek because the Greeks argued about this, and of course moderns have argued about it too. Herodotus says there's no question about this. Alexander went to Olympia. There were people who said he can't compete, he's just a Macedonian. He proved to them he was Greek, and he competed at Olympia. End of story for Herodotus. Raises all sorts of questions about how you do it in a world without birth certificates, um, how you manage to persuade people that, 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 that you are. Uh, what he seems to do is trace his genealogy back to, to, to the kings of, uh, of Argos. So it starts very early on as something which is quintessentially Greek. And interestingly, what happens is it just changes its shape as Greek history evolves. Um, uh, by the, the second century BC, Greece belongs to Rome. What we, we still get is this Greek insistence on Greekness, on athletics, and I think what happens is it starts to take a, on a, uh, not a different form, but a different significance. We've lost to the Romans. The Romans are bigger, uglier than we are. They're stronger, they're better engineers, they're richer. What we have is culture. And I think this sort of sense of hanging on to the essence of one's national identity means that athletics stays very important for being Greek right the way through, uh, through Greek history, virtually until it, it reaches its thousandth year and, um, uh, and, and um, Theodosius I closes the games. Yep. You offered some insight, comparative insight, with respect to the athlete in Greece and the contemporary athlete. Mm -hmm. um, could you make some observations uh, with respect to the spectators in Greece as opposed to the fans of today mm -hmm. and the different views and approaches they might have? Yeah. May, may I supplement mm -hmm. that with another yeah. side question, <clears throat> which is that uh, would you, from your reading, you were not there, nor was I, um, uh, would you say that the emphasis on physical beauty is much less today than it was in Greek times? I would have said yes. There's a strong emphasis, I think, on, on the fine body, on the well-toned the well body. But I think it's much more the, 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 the fineness of musculature, I think. But, but it's much more on performance. You're, you're quite right. Uh, whereas I think there is, there is a much stronger aesthetic feel. I don't think it's completely absent now. But I, but I think it's a much stronger sense of the athlete as something beautiful. To, to, to admire. Yeah. Sorry, uh, the, was the question was about, about the spectator. <clears throat> I read something interesting um, uh, with reference to athletics and, uh, and society. Um, sorry, I, sh I should step back and say that we, we, can from, uh, we can get something of the sense of the, the number of people who could watch the, run, uh, the, the races at Olympia. It's thousands that you will get, so people do descend on these... Um, uh, on these uh, festivals to uh, to watch, uh, probably much more from from the locality because if you think about the difficulties of travel, uh, even in the summer in the ancient world, you're much more likely to travel if you can walk there, get there within a day, uh, etc. But the um, uh, but we know that there, there is mass spectating. <coughs> I, I I read somewhere recently that. Um, you probably have a very similar phenomenon in the ancient world, that what you've got is a lot of very highly trained experts performing for an audience of couch potatoes. 
I think it's slightly different from that because I think sport is embedded in Greek society in a way that I don't think it is in modern society. The modern approach is always to try to feed the Olympic movement back into society to achieve sort of sustainable sports training from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, Olympic uh, activity. I think because everywhere you go, there is, a, um, there is a gymnasium. Everywhere you go, there is a wrestling school. I think if you're a member of the Greek elite, and I, and I do think there's a class aspect to this, but if you're a member of the Greek elite, I think you probably understand athletics, um, experience athletics in your life to a degree that, most, that, that a lot of people don't. And therefore, I think there's probably a lot more continuity between those who are performing and those who are watching, uh, uh, other things being equal. I've read some, heard some recent research about the vase paintings um, with reference to things like um, boxing and wrestling. And um, the, um, uh, the, the, some very good recent research, which is um, reenactment research, strongly suggests that um, uh, a lot of the vase paintings are actually depicting real moves. And therefore, the people painting these vases often understood the games. And the people who, um, uh, who are buying the vases also uh, know the games. Also, if you look, if I can just take you back through the stuff I never got around to showing you. Um, if you look there, you've got a, um, a wrestling school. And you'll notice that you've got two, two, two boxers, two pancratias, the really vicious stuff. And you've got a man with a stick. And his job is to hit you. If you if you break the rules, and the, the, there are all these details that one is getting that suggest that people know about these things. And then if you look at the literary text, you get lots of occasions when people use use images um, from from athletics. There's a, a term, for instance, called uh, the ephedros, and it looks as though at certain points in the pentathlon, you actually need, you'd end up with three wrestlers uh, in your final. And of course, you can't have, put three wrestlers into the room. Uh, into the ring at the same time. So one of them is, 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 is standby, Ephedros. Uh, and it looks as though two of them wrestle, and then he comes in as the, uh, 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 to wrestle the winner of the match. There's so much of this imagery in the literature that it suggests a, a lot of understanding of the, the sport across a wider range. Everyone in this room, I think, could explain the offside rule to me because you all are familiar with football. I won't ask you to explain it, but, um, uh, but those, who, those who don't understand it can ask those who do. But you know, there, there are certain things that we understand, but the understanding of athletics seems to be much more across the range. I don't know if that... I wondered one other thing. Has there been any discussion of a parallel between the Greek Olympics and something like sumo in Japan, where there's much ceremony involved and it's uh, more I, uh, respectful? I know of nothing myself, but I can refer you to a book <clears throat> published this year by the British Museum Press by a colleague of mine at UCL called Vivian Lowe, L-O. And it, it is a comparative study uh, it's a, a compilatory volume with a number of scholars uh, uh, talking. And certainly, she introduces things like Chinese sport, lots of interesting comparative stuff, like the presence of, China, of team sports in China, which you never get in ancient Greece. They don't like teams. Uh, but that would be a good place to start for, for some of this. The, not enough comparative work has been done. The reenactment stuff is obviously operating with modern Western 
athletics. But there's a lot of room for comparative study um, within, within sports, uh, sports history. There's a lady. Uh, last question. Well, last two questions, because we're running. Okay. And you, you go ahead. We will, we will have we'll a drink afterwards, and so obviously, if there are any. We're going to carry on with the drinks afterwards. <laughs> you yeah. And the last thing we would want to do is to keep you from the wine, obviously. <laughs> well, uh, is, um, is beauty something that you have, or you are, or you are? Or something that you can achieve. Mm -hmm. The uh, you mean yeah for the Greeks yeah the there seems to be a strong emphasis on the genetic aspect of beauty. Um, one thing that we didn't have time to talk about is what makes a winner, and the <clears throat> the Greeks are where they talk about it, they talk obviously as, as we probably would as well in terms of sort of physical capacity, you know, whether, you're, whether you actually have the, the inherent potential. Uh, when our sources talk about beauty, they tend to perceive it as, as something which, which you have or don't have. Obviously you can make yourself more beautiful. There are all sorts of ways of enhancing the body, but actual physical beauty seems to be something that one possesses rather than something that one one acquires. Okay, you want to ask a question? Yes, the back there. Yep. Yes, the, uh, you. Uh, go ahead. Um, actually, I want to ask um, one question about the neurobiological aspect of beauty. I'm wondering that because you said that um, um, there's this like the this, there's this in the brain that you have the same area that responds both to the ethical and physical aspect of beauty. So I'm wondering what if like, um, would the experience of beauty changes if um, just something physically beautiful but not ethically beautiful? Well, these are, these are separate studies. It's an interesting question that if you find, uh, uh, if you look at someone whom you find physically very beautiful but you know that they are morally repugnant uh, I wonder what you would experience them as, and I wonder what brain activity will, will result. I just don't know the answer. What is clear is that um, morally repugnant acts uh, tend to uh, uh, lead to activity elsewhere in the brain, whereas morally beautiful uh, or morally um, acceptable and desirable acts tend to lead to activity in a region which is also engaged when you experience beauty. But what the question you're asking is an interesting neurobiological question. I just don't know the answer to it. So the, really the question of uh, you know, someone who is uh, very, uh, let's go even beyond that, somebody who is very beautiful, very able, very intelligent, but is morally repugnant. Uh, do you experience such a person as beautiful? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what would happen in the brain. Well, there we are. I, before uh, we break up, I thank Chris. Let me just say that you're all invited to have a drink in the South Cloisters across the road. Um, I think we have done a nice tour of uh, the Olympics and of Greek culture and concepts and how they are associated in the Olympic Games and in the brain. And we've had the... Um, privilege of having Chris Carey, whose prodigious knowledge we put at our disposal. Chris, thank you very much. <laughs>